a 75% chance of losing $100,000, and a 25% chance of losing nothing. Experiment after experiment has revealed that most people choose A and D. However, that combination doesn't make a lot of sense. The expected gain of option B is $25,000, so choosing A over B is consistent with risk aversion. However, the choice of D over C is risk-seeking. The expected value of option D is minus $75,000, but C offers that loss for sure, whereas D has a chance of you losing $100,000. Putting the dislike of losses and the willingness to gamble in the face of potential losses together gives us some powerful insights into investors' behavior. For some reason, in some bizarre mental world, people believe that a loss isn't a loss until they realize it. This belief tends to lead to investors holding on to their losing stocks and selling their winning stocks, known as the disposition effect. Terry Odian, whom you met in Chapter 4, has explored this bad habit among individual investors. He has examined data from a discount brokerage for about 10,000 accounts from 1987 to 1993. The purchases and sales for each account had been recorded. Odeon found that investors held losing stocks for a median of 124 days and held winning stocks for a median of 102 days. They also calculated the percentage of losing positions that were realized as a percentage of all losing stocks held and the percentage of winning positions that were realized as a percentage of all winning stocks held. Lo and behold... Odeon discovered that these individual investors sold an average of 15% of all winning positions and only 9% of all losing positions. That is to say, individual investors are 1.7 times as likely to sell a winning stock than a losing stock. One of the most common reasons for holding on to a stock is the belief that it will bounce back subsequently. This could be motivated by any number of potential psychological flaws, ranging from over-optimism and overconfidence to self-attribution bias. Odeon decided to investigate whether investors were correctly betting on recovery in the losers they continued to hold. Sadly, he found that the winners that were sold outperformed the losers that continued to be held by an average of 3.4% per annum. As mentioned before, professional investors are often very dismissive of such findings. In general, they assume that all of this behavioral finance theorizing applies to individual investors, but not to them. Talk about overconfident. Such overconfidence seems to be sadly misplaced. Andrea Frazzini has investigated the behavior of mutual fund managers and has discovered that even such seasoned professionals seem to suffer loss aversion. Frazzini analyzed the holdings and transactions of mutual funds between 1980 and 2002. He ended up with a sample of nearly 30,000 U.S. domestic mutual funds. Across all funds, he found that 17.6% of all gains were realized, but only 14.5% of all losses were realized. So professional investors were 1.2 times as likely to sell a winning stock rather than a losing stock. However, Frazzini took his analysis one step further. 
He ranked the mutual funds by the performance achieved over the last 12 months. The best performing funds were those with the highest percentage of losses realized, that is, the least loss averse. The best performing funds are less than 1.2 times more likely to sell a winning position than a losing position. The worst performing funds had the lowest percentage of realized losses. In fact, the worst performing funds showed about the same degree of loss aversion as the individual investors. They were 1.7 times more likely to sell a winning position than a losing position. So professional investors are just as likely to suffer from the disposition effect as the rest of us. Stop losses may be a useful form of pre-commitment that help alleviate the disposition effect in markets that witness momentum. Indeed, the disposition effect can generate the underreaction that characterizes momentum. Suppose a stock has a good earnings report and the price rises. The market will witness selling, as investors seem to have little trouble in selling winners. Thus, the price doesn't reach its full level in one go. Conversely, if a company witnesses a bad earnings report, its share price might fall, but investors are unwilling to realize their losses. They hold on to the stock, hoping it will recover. So prices adjust to new information only slowly in a world where investors display the disposition effect. Stop losses can act as triggers to prevent you sliding down the slippery slope of the disposition effect. The Endowment Effect Imagine you had bought a bottle of wine for $15 a few years ago. The wine is now appreciated vastly in price, so that at auction a bottle would now fetch something north of $150. Would you be prepared to buy a bottle or sell your existing stock? The most frequently encountered answer is a resounding no to both questions. When faced with this situation, people are generally unwilling to either buy or sell the wine. Let's try another case. Imagine you own a stock that has lost 30% of its value in the last three months. Given what we know about loss aversion, the chances are you will stick with it. However, imagine you go and make a cup of tea, and while you are standing over the kettle, your four-year-old nephew starts randomly pressing buttons on your PC looking for his favorite Thomas the Tank Engine game. You come back to your desk to find your nephew has somehow inadvertently sold your entire position. What do you do? Will you buy the shares you were previously so reluctant to sell? When asked this question, almost no one wants to buy back the stock. These two scenarios provide us with examples of inaction inertia, also known as the status quo bias. It is also an example of the endowment effect. Simply put, the endowment effect says that once you own something, you start to place a higher value on it than others would. The endowment effect is relatively easy to demonstrate in a classroom. You randomly give half a class of students a mug, or a pen, or anything else. Then tell the class that a market will be formed in which students with mugs can sell them to students without mugs who might want them. Presumably, since the mugs were randomly distributed, roughly half the people should wish to trade. So the predicted volume level is 50%. However, volumes in such markets are usually a fraction of the amount that might be expected. 
Indeed, in many experiments, the actual volume level is closer to 10%. The key reason for the lack of transactions is a massive gap in prices between the would-be buyers and sellers. Mugs such as the one used in this experiment retailed for $6 at the university store. Those who had mugs were willing to sell them for $5.25 on average. Those who didn't have mugs weren't willing to spend more than $2.50 to acquire one. So despite being given the mugs only minutes before, the act of ownership led sellers to ask for double the amount that buyers were willing to actually pay for the mug. Ownership seems to massively distort people's perceptions of value. Does this endowment effect stem from a reluctance to buy, meaning cheapskates, or a reluctance to sell, meaning asking too much? The relative importance of these two factors can be assessed by introducing a third category of player into the market. Rather than having just buyers and sellers, experimenters have introduced choosers. As before, mugs are distributed across the class randomly. The sellers were asked if they would be willing to sell their mugs at prices ranging from $0.25 cents to $9.25. A second group, the buyers, were asked if they would be willing to buy a mug over the same range of prices. A third group, the choosers, were not given a mug but were asked to choose for each of the prices whether they would rather receive a mug or the equivalent amount of money. In theory, the choosers and the sellers are in exactly the same situation. Both groups are deciding, at each price, between the mug and the amount of money. The only difference between the two groups is that the choosers don't have physical possession of a mug. However, as Yogi Berra pointed out, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. Choosers' prices are generally higher, on average around 50% higher, than the buyers' prices, but are still well below the prices set by the sellers. Sellers had prices that were, on average, nearly three times greater than the buyers were willing to pay, and nearly double the amount the choosers would have been willing to trade at. This represents clear evidence of the endowment effect, being driven by a reluctance of owners to part with their asset even though they may have only actually owned the item in question for a matter of minutes. Think about these effects the next time you are considering a particular company. If you already hold stock in that company, you may actually impute a higher value than is warranted, simply because you already own the shares. Lee Ainsley of Maverick Capital is aware of this kind of problem. He tests his conviction by gauging whether the name is a buy or a sell. There is no hold. Ainsley says, Either this security deserves incremental capital at the current price point, or it doesn't. In which case, let's sell it and put the money to work in a security that deserves that incremental capital. Figuring out how to act in the face of losses is one of the biggest challenges any investor can face. As fund manager Richard Pizena puts it, I believe the biggest way you add value as a value investor is how you behave on those down 25% situations. Sometimes you should buy more, 
Sometimes you should get out, and sometimes you should stay put. We probably hold tight 40% of the time, and split 50-50 between buying more and getting out. Christopher Brown of Tweedy Brown makes a further useful distinction when it comes to selling an investment. He points out that we should make a clear distinction when selling between compounders and cigar butt stocks. Once the cigar butts come back, you know to get out because they're just going to go down again. With something like Johnson & Johnson, though, you make a judgment call when it hits intrinsic value based on your confidence in its ability to compound returns and what your alternatives are. This dichotomy between cigar butts and compounders is an important one for investors to understand. Warren Buffett has described Ben Graham's, his mentor, investment style as cigar butt investing, that is, buying really cheap stocks almost regardless of the underlying industry economics, and then selling them when they get close to intrinsic value. Stocks that Brown describes as compounders will tend to grow their intrinsic value over time, allowing the investor to reap the rewards over a longer time period, assuming that market price doesn't get far ahead of intrinsic value. I am not a big country and western fan. Frankly, I prefer hard rock. But my dad was a big Kenny Rogers fan, and the words to his song The Gambler could well serve as a useful reminder to investors. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money while you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Chapter 16. Process, Process, Process. That One Thing You Can Control. Watching the Olympics and listening to several of the successful athletes, one of the inane questions from the interviewers often seemed to be, What was going through your mind before the event? Were you thinking of the gold? Time and again, the competitors responded that they were focused on the process, not the outcome. Along similar lines, I came across the following post by Paul De Podesta on his blog, It Might Be Dangerous, You Go First, from June 10, 2008. For those who don't know De Podesta, he is a baseball front office assistant for the San Diego Padres and was formerly the general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. For those who have read Michael Lewis's Moneyball, De Podesta will need no introduction. He writes, Many years ago, I was playing blackjack in Las Vegas on a Saturday night in a packed casino. I was sitting at third base, and the player who was at first base was playing horribly. He was definitely taking advantage of the free drinks, and it seemed as though every 20 minutes he was dipping into his pocket for more cash. On one particular hand, the player was dealt 17 with his first two cards. The dealer was set to deal the next set of cards and passed right over the player until he stopped her, saying, Dealer, I want a hit. She paused, almost feeling sorry for him, and said, Sir, are you sure? He said yes, and the dealer dealt the card. Sure enough, it was a four. The place went crazy. High fives all around, everybody hooting and hollering. And you know what the dealer said? The dealer looked at the player and with total sincerity said, Nice hit. 
I thought, nice hit. Maybe it was a nice hit for the casino, but it was a terrible hit for the player. The decision isn't justified just because it worked. Well, I spent the rest of that weekend wandering around the casino, largely because I had lost all of my money playing blackjack, thinking about all of the different games and how they work. The fact of the matter is that all casino games have a winning process. The odds are stacked in favor of the house. That doesn't mean that they win every single hand or every roll of the dice, but they do win more often than not. Don't misunderstand me. The casino is absolutely concerned about outcomes. However, their approach to securing a good outcome is a laser-like focus on process, right down to the ruthless pit boss. We can view baseball through the same lens. Baseball is certainly an outcome-driven business. As we get charged with a W or an L 162 times a year, or 163 times every once in a while. Furthermore, we know we cannot possibly win every single time. In fact, winning just 60% of the time is a great season, a percentage that far exceeds house odds in most games. Like a casino, it appears as though baseball is all about outcomes. But just think about all of the processes that are in play during the course of just one game or even just one at-bat. In having this discussion years ago with Michael Mabusen, who wrote More Than You Know, a great book, he showed me a very simple matrix by Russo and Shoemaker in Winning Decisions that explains this concept. You have two columns, good outcome and bad outcome. On the left-hand side, you have good process and bad process. So if you have good process and good outcome, it's deserved success. If you have good process and bad outcome, it's a bad break. If you have bad process and a good outcome, it's dumb luck. And if you had bad process and bad outcome, it's poetic justice. We all want to be in that first upper left box, deserve success resulting from a good process. This is generally where the casino lives. I'd like to think that this is where the Oakland A's and San Diego Padres have been during the regular seasons. The box in the upper right, however, is the tough reality we all face in industries that are dominated by uncertainty. A good process can lead to a bad outcome in the real world. In fact, it happens all the time. This is what happened to the casino when a player hit on 17 and won. I'd like to think this is what happened to the A's and Padres during the post-seasons. As tough as a good process-bad outcome combination is, nothing compares to the bottom left, bad process-good outcome. This is the wolf in sheep's clothing that allows for one-time success, but almost always cripples any chance of sustained success. The player hitting on 17 and getting a 4. Here's the rub. It's incredibly difficult to look in the mirror after a victory, any victory, and admit that you were lucky. If you fail to make that admission, however, the bad process will continue and the good outcome that occurred once will elude you in the future. Quite frankly, this is one of the things that makes Billy Bean, general manager of the Oakland A's, as good as he is. He is quick to notice good luck embedded in a good outcome, and he refuses to pat himself on the back for it. At the Padres, we want to win every game we play, at every level. 
and want to be right on every single player decision we make. We know it's not going to happen because there is too much uncertainty, too much we cannot control. That said, we can control the process. Championship teams will occasionally have a bad process and a good outcome. Championship organizations, however, reside exclusively in the upper half of the matrix. To me, the similarities between De Podesta's points on process and baseball and process and investment are blindingly obvious. We obsess with outcomes over which we have no direct control. However, we can and do control the process by which we invest. As investors, this is what we should focus upon. The management of return is impossible. The management of risk is illusory. But process is the one thing we can exert an influence over. Ben Graham knew the importance of focusing upon process. He wrote, I recall to those of you who are bridge players the emphasis that bridge experts place on playing a hand right rather than on playing it successfully. Because, as you know, if you play it right, you are going to make money, and if you play it wrong, you lose money. In the long run. There is a beautiful little story about the man who was the weaker bridge player of the husband-wife team. It seems he bid a grand slam, and at the end he said very triumphantly to his wife, I saw you making faces at me all the time, but you notice, I not only bid this grand slam, but I made it. What can you say about that? And his wife repeated very dourly, If you had played it right, you would have lost it. The Psychology of Process The need to focus on process rather than outcomes is critical in investing. As we have seen in this little book, there are no magic shortcuts to being a good investor. The investors I have mentioned in the various chapters have come across behavioral biases in themselves and have tried to find a way to overcome these innate tendencies. In investing, outcomes are highly unstable because they involve an integral of time. Effectively, it is perfectly possible to be right over a five-year view and wrong on a six-month view, and vice versa. We also have to deal with the fact that price volatility is several orders of magnitude greater than fundamental volatility. People often judge a past decision by its ultimate outcome rather than basing it on the quality of the decision at the time it was made, given what was known at that time. This is outcome bias. Imagine you are asked to rate the soundness of the physician's decision process, not outcome, in the following case. A 55-year-old man had a heart condition. He had to stop working because of chest pain. He enjoyed his work and did not want to stop. His pain also interfered with other things, such as travel and recreation. A type of bypass operation would relieve his pain and increase his life expectancy from age 65 to age 70. However, 8% of the people who have this operation die from the operation itself. His physician decided to go ahead with the operation. The operation succeeded. Evaluate the physician's decision to go ahead with the operation on the following scale, with three being the highest or most positive and negative three being the least or most negative. 
3. Clearly correct, and the opposite decision would be inexcusable. 2. Correct, all things considered. 1. Correct, but the opposite would be reasonable, too. 0. The decision and its opposite are equally good. Negative 1. Incorrect, but not unreasonable. Negative 2. Incorrect, all things considered. And negative 3. Incorrect and inexcusable. Now imagine the same task, except that in this alternative setting, the operation was unsuccessful and the patient died. Of course, the correctness of the physician's decision should not be a function of the outcome, since clearly the doctor couldn't have known the outcome before the event. However, when people are given scenarios such as these, the decision is always rated as much better if the outcome is good. Psychological evidence also shows that focusing on outcomes can create all sorts of unwanted actions. For instance, in a world in which short-term performance is everything, fund managers may end up buying stocks they find easy to justify to their clients, rather than those that represent the best opportunity. In general, holding people accountable for outcomes tends to increase the following. 1. Focus on outcomes with a higher certainty, which is known as ambiguity aversion. 2. Collection and use of all information, both useful and useless. 3. Preference for compromise options. 4. Selection of products with average features on all measures over a product with mixed features, that is, average on four traits, preferred to good on two, and bad on two. And 5. Degree of loss aversion that people display. None of these features is likely to serve investors well. Together they suggest that when every decision is measured on outcomes, investors are likely to avoid uncertainty, chase noise, and herd with a consensus. Sounds like a pretty good description of much of the investment industry to me. Process Accountability However, if we switch the focus from outcomes to process, things begin to change for the better. Let's imagine you work for an American brewery that was planning to distribute its non-alcoholic and light beer, as repulsive as those ideas are to me as a real ale drinker, into Europe. The data shows that both products have done about equally well in their test period. Your task is to decide which of the two products should receive an extra $3 million in funding. The decision you make should reflect the potential benefit of the additional funding to the product and the company. You write down your decision and provide a brief explanation of the reasoning behind the decision. Having done this, you receive the following communication from the head office. Your recommendation to allocate the additional $3 million to the, whichever beer you chose, Beer was adopted by the president of the company and implemented. As you will note on the next page, the results have been rather disappointing. The data indicate sales and profits of the product that you had selected started okay and then went down, and finally settled in a low, constant pattern of sales. The sales and profits of the alternative product were also shown. They also went up initially, then down but ended up settling at a higher level than the product chosen by you. 
You are then told that the company had decided to make an additional $10 million available in funding. However, this time, the money could be split between the two beers. How would you allocate the $10 million between the two beers? In addition, you are told one of the following. 1. The information you have received is enough to make a good decision, the baseline. Or 2. If you make particularly good or bad choices, your performance would be shared with students and instructors. You are also told that your performance would be based on the outcome of the decision they took. Outcome accountability. Or 3. You are informed that your evaluation will be based on their effective use of decision strategies rather than the outcomes of those strategies. Once again, if you use particularly good or bad decision processes, these would be shared with students and instructors. Process accountability. The evidence shows a marked difference in the allocations depending on which of these three statements you receive. The group who were focused on the outcome of their decision decided to allocate an average of $5.8 million to the beer they had originally selected. This is a classic example of the sunk cost fallacy, which we saw in Chapter 9. By comparison, the baseline subjects split the money roughly evenly, giving their previous choice $5.1 million. However, the group told to focus upon the process of decision-making rather than the outcome did much better. They only allocated $4 million to the beer that they had originally chosen, giving the majority of the money to the more popular beer. Focusing on process seems to lead to better decisions. The same is true in investment. Focusing upon process frees us up from worrying about the aspects of the investment which we really can't control, such as return. By focusing upon process, we maximize our potential to generate good, long-term returns. Unfortunately, focusing on process and its long-term benefits won't necessarily help you in the short term. During periods of underperformance, the pressure always builds to change your process. However, a sound process is capable of generating poor results, just as a bad process can generate good results. Perhaps we would all do well to remember the late, great Sir John Templeton's words. The time to reflect on your investing methods is when you are most successful, not when you are making the most mistakes. Or indeed, Ben Graham's exaltation, The value approach is inherently sound. Devote yourself to that principle. Stick to it, and don't be led astray. Conclusion The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Why promising to be good just isn't enough. It is confession time. As anyone who knows me can attest, I am overweight, although I prefer to think of myself as simply too short for my weight. In fact, according to the Body Mass Index, which compares height to weight, designed by size fascists, I'm sure, I am on the borderline between overweight and obese. I know how to correct this problem. I should simply eat less. However, I find this incredibly hard to actually do. So despite the fact I know how to change, I don't change. So my knowledge doesn't translate into better behavior. 
Rather, I file the information in the category of things I know and choose to ignore. Brian Wansink has written a brilliant book about the psychology of food entitled Mindless Eating. He and his fellow researchers have found that many of the same biases I have discussed in previous chapters show up in our eating and shopping habits, evidence for the universal nature of these biases. For instance, the ease of availability influences how much we eat. When chocolates are visible and convenient, people will eat nearly three times more than when they have to walk two meters to collect one. Think about this in terms of information and the problems with information overload that we discussed in Chapter 7. Similarly, Wansick has found evidence of anchoring effects when it comes to shopping. He presented consumers with a limit in terms of the quantity of cans of soup they were allowed to purchase. The soup was labeled as costing 79 cents, normally 89 cents, and purchasers were presented with a sign saying either no limit per person, limit of four cans per person, or limit of 12 cans per person. When there was no limit, an average of 3.3 cans per person were purchased, with total sales of 73 cans. When the four-can limit was introduced, buyers purchased an average of 3.5 cans per person, but total sales increased to 106 cans. When the 12-can limit was imposed, the average buyer purchased seven cans, and total sales soared to 188 cans. So merely suggesting a number seemed to provoke a very real reaction among consumers. As we mentioned before, this has parallels with much of the modern risk management industry. Even the influence of groups shows up when it comes to eating. If you dine with one other person, you'll eat about 35% more than you would otherwise. If you eat in a group of seven or more, you'll eat nearly twice as much as you would do on your own. Talk about the power of herding. Wansink warns of the danger of the tyranny of the moment, the point at which we find ourselves staring at the vending machine with the Mars bar beckoning us. We know we don't need it, but we rationalize it as a chocolate hit to compensate for a stressful day. Knowledge doesn't necessarily lead to changes in behavior. In fact, even in the most life-threatening situations, knowledge doesn't equal behavior. Researchers have examined the difference between knowledge of HIV-AIDS and its prevention and actual sexual behavior. In Botswana, 91% of men said they knew that the use of a condom could help prevent the spread of HIV-AIDS, yet only 70% of them used a condom. Among women, the situation was even worse. 92% reported that they knew condoms were useful in preventing HIV-AIDS transmission, but only 63% used them. So even when the stakes are as high as they possibly can be, your very life depends upon it, knowledge is still not enough to alter behavior. Simple promises to be good or to behave better are unlikely to be enough either. We all start out with good intentions. Sadly, few of us seem to end up seeing those intentions turn into a reality. For instance, people were asked to complete a questionnaire about giving blood at an upcoming donation clinic. They had to rate how likely they were to give blood, 
and also rate on a scale of one to nine, one being strongly disagree, nine strongly agree, a series of statements concerning their attitudes on the subject, including a final question which read, Right now, as I think about it, I strongly intend to donate blood at the July 14th through 22nd Blood Donation Clinic. This was used to gauge participants' current intention strength. In general, people were massively too optimistic about their blood donation. Those who scored themselves a 9 thought they were about 90% likely to give blood. However, only 40% of them did so. Those who scored themselves a 5 thought they were about 45% likely to give blood, but less than 20% of them actually did so. Those who had low current intentions, scoring themselves a 2, thought they were 10% likely to give blood, and not one of them did. The predicted probability of blood donation rose much faster across the strength of current intentions than the actual outcome. This implies that current intentions have an overly strong effect on prediction of behavior, but not on behavior itself. That is to say, we all think we will be good in the future, but we won't. So how do we overcome this hurdle? When it comes to food, Wansink says that a combination of rebiasing and simple rules can help us. For instance, using a smaller size plate can help turn framing to our advantage, as obviously a smaller plate looks full with less than a larger plate. Simple rules such as half of the plate should be vegetables. Remember to slow down, start last and finish last, or drink no more than one sugared soft drink, are all examples which will eventually lead to good habits. Wansink also suggests trying to alter no more than three aspects of our behavior at any one time. We simply can't cope with too many changes at once. I could go on the cabbage soup diet, and I would almost certainly lose weight, not to mention friends, but as soon as I came off the diet, I would probably start to put weight back on again. Small, manageable steps are likely to be the best way towards sustainable weight loss. The same is likely to be true when it comes to investing. We shouldn't try to change everything in one swoop, as we'll fail. Working out which biases you suffer from the most and addressing these first should help improve returns. Over the course of this audiobook, I've tried to suggest ways in which you can protect yourself against the most common mental pitfalls, and shown you the ways in which some of the world's best investors have put processes in place to defend themselves. The key lesson from these investors is that we must concentrate on process. Process is the set of rules that govern how we go about investing. As we have seen time and time again in this little book, some of the world's greatest investors, from Sir John Templeton's research on a quiet day to George Soros's diaries, from Bruce Berkowitz's Kill the Company, to Michael Steinhardt's Selling the Entire Portfolio, have integrated measures into the way in which we approach investment to act as a guard against mindless investing. The reason they have codified the process is that they know that unless they force themselves to behave in this fashion, they will slip back into old habits. So think carefully about the way you invest. Which of these errors have you committed most regularly?
What might you be able to do to prevent yourself from stumbling down this path again? Thinking about these issues is the first step in overcoming your own worst enemy when it comes to investment. Yourself. This has been a Gildan Audio production. For more affordable life-changing audio programs, visit our website at gildanmedia.com.